Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609. 3711. Hey, this is episode th- number 16 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Tuesday, November 2nd. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Now, that having been said, there is a lot going on today, a lot that we need to talk about today, how Dr. Fauci fooled America, how the head of the Chinese Communist Party stopped the world, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial over his self-defense is going today. It's election day in Virginia and New Jersey. But uh, I want to start, I want to start with a few words from a gentleman named Russ Vaught. Now, Russ Vaught is president of the Center for Renewing America. Prior to founding the center, he served as the 42nd director of the Office of Management and Budget and was a member of President Trump's cabinet and responsible for overseeing the implementation of his policy, management, and deregulatory agendas across the executive branch. Would that he would have been allowed to continue that. Uh, But we all know what happened last November. They stole it. Anyway, um, Russ Vaught has a remarkable new article that came out at AmericanReformer.org yesterday called The Moral Clarity of a Dissident. And I want to start with this today because it's so important for those of us who are people of faith, who are trying to come to grips with how to operate when we are being ruled by a regime that is in total opposition to everything we believe, okay? So here's what Brother Russ Vaught says over at AmericanReformer.org. Almost two years into a worldwide pandemic amidst at least a decade of bitter partisanship in society and increased confrontations over race and what to do about it, the American evangelical church is extremely divided. While Christians work hard to stay unified and respect each other's consciences, Throughout the turmoil, the lack of any Christian consensus on how to approach the prevailing issues of the day is stark. What explains it? One important explanation is that it is that it stems from a lack of Christian shrewdness. Matthew ten sixteen says, "Behold, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves." So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Perhaps no verse in the Bible presents so simply the duties for Christians living in the modern age. It recognizes that the world around us is fallen and opposed to God's truth, and that discernment is therefore paramount if we are to understand and properly respond to events. Many Christian elites skip this call for shrewdness and suffer from profound naivete. The fall did not just result in a world marked by evil. It created massive confusion and disorder. Humanity is left searching for some foundation beneath its feet. For Christians, that bedrock is the Word of God, providing the mind of God to filter all of reality. But this is difficult because we often accept and bring the world's categories of understanding to the process. Our posture is not appropriately and biblically oppositional, and therefore we lack the moral clarity of, for instance, a dissident. Now, a dissident is one who is opposed to what an evil regime stands for because he understands its true nature. That critical assessment creates clarity that must then be matched with shrewdness. One of the great challenges to answering our intuitive question, what is actually going on in our world, is that our culture's categories have become utterly confused. Take the example of a ladder. A ladder's purpose is to be a series of connected steps that allow one to climb up or down, but at some point, a ladder may lose all connection to its purpose, and to continue to speak of it as such has no meaning. Of course, one can still climb a ladder if the first rung is broken, but what if all the rungs are broken? It's now just wood. Some hardware may still be on it, but the wood has been robbed of its purpose. We can think of other more serious examples in this vein as well. Marriages, homes, communities. Now consider some of the categories of our modern policy debates. The role of experts, the media, or even the government itself. Take the experts. We think of experts as dispassionate individuals with great knowledge in a field of study with years of experience. They look at data, deal in facts, and speak truth to inform. But what if some are instead experts in perpetuating their own failed bureaucratic paradigm or instead of looking at data afresh, merely consume and then regurgitate the accepted expert narrative of the day? What if experts have the will to disbelieve truth as Reagan's you and Ambassador Gene Kirkpatrick memorably put it? the will to disbelieve truth. One would then conclude that they are not owed our trust, but rather our skepticism. The changing positions and overall record of individuals such as NIH's Anthony Fauci and institutions such as the CDC throughout the COVID pandemic come immediately to mind. Expertise itself is not the issue. The problem lies rather in a naive acceptance of whatever anyone with the label expert says. So-called expertise comes laden with any number of unstated presuppositions 
Their unstatedness meant to convince us that they are the only rational conclusions to which an intelligent and moral person could arrive. What about the news media? The media's purpose is to report the facts and fearlessly inform the body politic. Its purpose is noble and necessitated by human fallibility, given that public actors often shun transparency. But what if the media no longer intends to report the truth but a partisan or secular line? What if in every debate the vast majority of news anchors, producers, and reporters aim to protect the regime's governing consensus? We would then liken them to the propagandists of state media and totalitarian systems. We would not expect to discover the truth because it is not in this kind of media's interest to report the truth. Christians in China, for example, do not expect to read accurate reports about their own persecution. This is the nature increasingly of the U.S. news media. Now, you may have noticed a continued reference to the term the regime. This terminology is important if we're to avoid the category confusion that comes along with an inadequate view of government. It is also necessary if we're to foster a Christian realism for our times. A regime is the institutions, bureaucracies, and people who rule us. It's not just our government. It includes a class of people, often elites, educated at the same schools and in the same assumptions, who view the world through the same lenses. A regime is the vast cultural apparatus that enables a select group of people to act in concert in many different institutions and roles. It often includes the cultural heights of media, higher education, and entertainment. And a regime's purposes and interests may force Christians to assume the posture of dissidence so as not to compromise their fidelity to God. Thinking in terms of the regime provides a paradigm that offers some hope of accurately assessing the cultural forces in play around us, knowing that all regimes fall short of biblical principles in some way. In practice, this might look like a, gov a Christian government official recognizing early that a purportedly well-running agency is still incentivized to protect its power and endeavoring instead to align it toward the pursuit of truth and justice. It might look like a pastor recognizing the absence of a Christian worldview in his flock and planning sermons over time to achieve a greater consensus in that local congregation to encourage its members to act courageously, especially in those areas most likely to attract the modern world's hostility. And it might look like ordinary lay believers, perhaps outranked in academic degree, courageously speaking at school board meetings in opposition to government, education, or health care experts. Life is confounding. Faithfulness requires us to seek truth and to pray constantly for shrewdness in approaching the world around us. To do so, we must gain the moral clarity of a dissident. And when we do, we will be able to reason toward a consensus with our fellow Christians on how we should then live. Wow. 
That is Russ Vaught, president of the Center for Renewing America, gentleman who served as uh, President Trump's 42nd director of the Office of Management and Budget. And the article, and I'll put it on my Facebook page here in a little bit, The Moral Clarity of a Dissident. And uh, it features a picture of the late, great Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great dissident against the communist state, the Soviet Union back in the day. And uh, if you haven't read any of his stuff, I would recommend that you do. The Gulag Archipelago was fascinating. Here was a man who was a dissident, and he was animated by his faith in Christ as surely as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Christian dissident against Hitler and the, and the Third Reich. So I came across this earlier this morning as I was preparing for the show, and I thought, well, now, that could put things into context. That could put things into context, context because so many people are so confused about what's going on. And anything I can do, of course, to bring clarity, I will do. Now, let's take a look at uh, Martin Koldorf and Jay Bhattacharya over at Newsweek. Their op-ed that came out yesterday, How Fauci Fooled America. And they say, when the pandemic hit, America needed someone to turn to for advice. The media and public naturally looked to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, an esteemed laboratory immunologist and one of President Trump's chosen COVID advisors. Unfortunately, Dr. Fauci got major epidemiology and public health questions wrong. Reality and scientific studies have now caught up with him. Here are the key issues. Natural immunity is the first. By pushing vaccine mandates, Dr. Fauci ignores naturally acquired immunity among the COVID recovered, of which there are more than 45 million in the United States. Mounting evidence indicates that natural immunity is stronger and longer lasting than vaccine-induced immunity. In a study from Israel, the vaccinated were 27 times more likely to get symptomatic COVID than the unvaccinated who had recovered from a prior infection. We have known about natural immunity from disease at least since the Athenian plague in 430 B.C. Pilots, truckers, and longshoremen know about natural immunity, and nurses know it better than anyone. Under Fauci's mandates, hospitals are firing heroic nurses who recovered from COVID they contracted while caring for patients. With their superior immunity, they can safely care for the oldest and frailest patients with even lower transmission risk than the vaccinated. Yeah, but Fauci doesn't care. Another main point that has caught up with him. Oh, my goodness. Why on earth? Why on earth didn't I turn down the ringer on my phone? I don't know. Do I do this every day, guys? Do I do, I do this every day? I think I probably do.
Well, just, just you know, it's just a way of maybe showing the folks who listen to this after the fact, who download the podcast, that you can listen to it live. You can listen to the show live by um, downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone. Anyway, back to these guys at Newsweek eviscerating Fauci. Protecting the elderly. While anyone can get infected, there's more than a thousandfold difference in mortality risk between the old and the young. After more than 700,000 reported COVID deaths in America, we now know that lockdowns failed to protect high-risk older people. When confronted with the idea of focused protection of the vulnerable, Dr. Fauci admitted he had no idea how to accomplish it, arguing that it would be impossible. That may be understandable for a lab scientist, but public health scientists have presented many concrete suggestions that would have helped had Fauci and other officials not ignored them. Now, I do want to say this about the idea that there were 700,000 reported COVID deaths in America. Again, 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 the CDC said 94% of COVID deaths are folks with at least two and a half other comorbidities. Only 6%, they're sure, actually died from COVID instead of just with it. But I think that's a <laughs> that's a major uh, qualification there when anybody talks about this massive pandemic that has killed so many people. Anyway, they go on to say, what can we now do to minimize COVID mortality? Current vaccination efforts should focus on reaching people over 60 who are neither COVID recovered nor vaccinated, including hard to reach less affluent people in rural areas and inner cities. Okay, guys, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. What about the fact that uh, the shot kills some people? They'll never admit it, but Hank Aaron died two weeks after the great Hank Aaron, the great baseball legend, died two weeks after getting the jab. They'll never admit that there was any connection, but I'm just saying. Anyway, instead, Dr. Fauci has pushed vaccine mandates for children, students, and working-age adults who are already immune, all low-risk populations causing tremendous disruption to labor markets and hampering the operation of many hospitals. But see, Fauci doesn't care about that. That's a feature, not a bug. He's a bad guy, okay? They continue. School closures. Schools are major transmission points for influenza, but not for COVID. While children do get infected, their risk for COVID death is minuscule, lower than their already low risk of dying from the flu. Throughout the 2020 spring wave, Sweden kept daycare and schools open for all its 1.8 million children ages 1 to 15 with no masks, testing, or social distancing. The result? Zero COVID deaths among children and a COVID risk to teachers lower than the average of other professions. In fall 2020, most European countries followed suit to what Sweden had done with similar results. Considering the devastating effects of school closures on children, Dr. Fauci's advocacy for school closures may be the single biggest mistake of his career. Again, 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 I don't believe it's a mistake. He's a bad guy. He's trying to help take down this society. Next point, masks. The gold standard of medical research is randomized trials 
and there have now been two randomized trials on COVID masks for adults. For children, there's no solid scientific evidence that masks work. A Danish study found no statistically significant difference between masking and not masking when it came to coronavirus infection. In a study in Bangladesh, the 95% confidence interval showed that masks reduced transmission between 0% and 18%. So masks are either of zero or limited benefit. There are many more critical pandemic measures that Fauci could have emphasized, such as better ventilation in schools and hiring nursing home staff with natural immunity. But he's not going to do that. Okay, how about contact tracing? Now, for some infectious diseases, such as Ebola and syphilis, contact tracing is critically important. For a commonly circulating viral infection, such as COVID, it was a hopeless waste of valuable public health resources that did not stop the disease. Okay, collateral public health damage. A fundamental public health principle is that health is multidimensional. The control of a single infectious disease is not synonymous with health. As an immunologist, Dr. Fauci failed to properly consider and weigh the disastrous effects lockdowns would have on cancer detection and treatment, cardiovascular disease outcomes, diabetes care, childhood vaccination rates, mental health, and opioid overdoses, to name a few. Americans will live with and die from this collateral damage for many years to come. In private conversations, most of our scientific colleagues agree with us on these points. While a few have spoken up, why not more doing so? Well, some tried but failed. Others kept silent when they saw colleagues slandered and smeared in the media or censored by big tech. Some are government employees who are barred from contradicting official policy. Many are afraid of losing positions or research grants or where the Dr. Fauci sits on top of the largest pile of infectious disease research money in the world. Most scientists are not experts on infectious disease outbreaks. Were we, say, oncologists, physicists, or botanists, we would probably also have trusted Dr. Fauci. But the evidence is in. Governors, journalists, scientists, university presidents, hospital administrators, and business leaders can continue to follow Dr. Anthony Fauci or open their eyes. After 700,000-plus COVID deaths and the devastating effects of lockdowns, it's time to return to basic principles of public health. Once again, that's uh, Martin Koldorf, Ph.D., an epidemiologist, biostatistician, biostatistician, pardon me, and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and Jay Bhattacharya, M.D., Ph.D., professor of health policy at Stanford University School of Medicine, and both are senior scholars at the newly formed Brownstone Institute. So there you, there you go. There you have it. Fauci, really, really bad guy. All right, now, that having been said, I want to, um, I want to draw your attention to an issue that the liberal mainstream media is purposely ignoring. And Margot Cleveland has the full story over the Federalist. Why the Wisconsin elder fraud voting story has national implications 
This is this is a story that I brought out to you on the Doc Washburn Show podcast last week. But now she's talking about why it has natural national implications. Last week, the Racine County Wisconsin Sheriff's Office held a 75-minute press conference to announce the results of their investigation into absentee voting at residential care facilities. As the Federalist reported at the time, the press conference showed that the Wisconsin Election Commission illegally directed municipalities not to use the special voting deputy process to service residents in care facilities, but instead to transmit absentee ballots to those voters by mail. That illegal directive resulted in apparent violations of election law by employees of the Ridgewood Care Center, a Racine County, Wisconsin nursing home. The evidence also suggests at a minimum the, the improper influence of elderly voters. Now, the significance of this story, however, spans much beyond the 72 counties comprising the Midwestern state of Wisconsin that broke to Joe Biden with a margin of less than 21,000 votes. Rather, an honest view, review of the evidence presented by Sheriff Christopher Schmalling and lead investigator Sergeant Michael Lewell exposes three significances of national importance. First, Thursday's press briefing exposed state officials' utter disregard for election law and their inability to stop flagrant misconduct before elections. Now, the Wisconsin Election Commission knew full well it was directing clerks to violate mandatory provisions of Wisconsin's election code, and so did the clerks, yet the lawlessness went unstopped. Indeed, the Wisconsin Election Commission did act lawlessly, as is clear from the Wisconsin Legislative Audit Bureau's October 2021 report that stressed statutes set forth the exclusive means of absentee voting in person in residential care facilities and qualify retirement homes, a municipal clerk must appoint at least two special voting deputies to supervise absentee voting by individuals in such facilities at home and homes. Okay, that's what the report explained. Yet not only did no one stop the Wisconsin Election Commission's directive, unless someone steps up to prosecute those responsible for directing the apparent violations of election law, it seems unlikely there will be any consequences to the state election officials. Not only are there no consequences, but there's also no outrage beyond a few on the right screaming into the void that election integrity matters. Meanwhile, the corrupt corporate media ignores the story out of Wisconsin, and the left spins it as Democrat Party of Wisconsin Interim Executive Director Devin Remaker did, calling the press conference nothing more than a publicity stunt. No wonder, then, we see election officials throughout the country blatantly ignoring the rules that state legislatures have established for elections. No one should take comfort in the fact that the press conference concerned last election cycle. The 2020 presidential election was not a one-off for election irregularities, but a test year for the new normal of election fraud, one, perpe one perpetrated by election officials instead of voters. Now, election officials in Fairfax County, Virginia, showcased this reality two weeks ago once the governor's race there turned tight 
by adopting a policy to ignore the statutory mandate that absentee ballot applicants include the final four digits of their Social Security numbers with their signature. Friday then saw a state court judge dismissing a lawsuit, challenging that law, finding the plaintiff in the case lacked standing to sue. With the election set for today and absentee ballots already returned, Virginia is destined to repeat the cycle seen throughout the country in 2020, violations of election law with no consequences. Now, a second lesson from Thursday's press briefing by the sheriff of Racine County, Wisconsin, concerns the victims of the election fraud in addition to every voter disenfranchised by a fraudulent vote. The oft-repeated response to undisputed evidence that election officials ignore the law or voters illegally voted in 2020 ran that the laws themselves were mere technicalities. We saw that in Georgia with the Secretary of State's offices, Chief Operating Officer Gabriel Sterling reportedly telling Atlanta's WSB-TV, quote, the reality is these are normal, everyday Georgians who are just trying to exercise their right to vote in a very weird year, unquote, after being confronted with evidence that one voter admitted he cast a vote in a county in which he no longer lived. The response, of course, is wrong in its own right as every illegal vote disenfranchises a lawful voter. What happened in Wisconsin, however, should penetrate the press and the public's apathy to voter fraud because the targets were vulnerable seniors, moms and dads of everyday Americans. Wisconsin's election code and the requirement for SVDs sought to prevent the potential for fraud or abuse, to prevent overzealous solicitation of absent electors who may prefer not to participate in an election to prevent undue influence on an absent elector to vote for or against a candidate or to cast a particular vote in a referendum or other similar abuses. Yet once election officials dispense with the SVDs, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I hate it. I hate it. When they put in abbreviations in the middle of a perfectly good article. And you're like, well, now, wait a minute. What does that stand for? What does that stand for? Something, obviously, that we had earlier in the article that she decided now to, uh, to abbreviate. And I apologize. I apologize. Anyway, <clears throat> pardon me. Where were we? That's exactly what happened with one former employee, oh, the special voting deputies, of course. Of course. That by law, they had to get them to help the folks at the nursing homes. And the election commission said, nope, don't do it. Once election officials dispense with the special voting deputies, that's exactly what happened with one former employee of the Ridgewood Care Center saying one senior who, quote, voted was leery about signing her name because she was unsure if she was voting for the right people. This problem is also not limited to Wisconsin, with the American Constitutional Rights Union receiving tips of similar abuse of vulnerable voters throughout the country. Now, the American Constitutional Rights Union is the nation's leading advocate for the protection of vulnerable voters 
They see the abuse of elderly and vulnerable voters as a nationwide problem. And in 2019, they launched a Protect Elderly Votes project to protect elderly and disabled voters in residential facilities. Yet even when it's a matter of protecting elderly and disabled voters, and even when presented with specific detailed evidence of such elder abuse, leftist media ignores the issue, proving the corporate press just does not care about election integrity. The same holds true for Democrats, whose response, instead of outrage, was to pretend this press conference was about Donald Trump. Wisconsin Democrat Party head Remaker said in response to the press conference, quote, this is just another attempt to attack our democracy and cast doubt on a free and fair election in which Wisconsinites elected Joe Biden, unquote. No one knows, however, who the seniors voted for, as the Racine County Sheriff's Office repeated numerous times on Thursday. The members of the Wisconsin Election Commission also come from both parties. In short, the only ones making election integrity about politics are the Democrats and the press. The Racine County Sheriff's Office press conference exposed a third reality with national significance. The summary of the nearly year-long investigation illustrates how law enforcement officials, officials, law enforcement officers who are serious about complaints of voter fraud handle a case. It contrasts starkly with the unserious response seen throughout the country by secretaries of state's offices, legislative bodies, and attorneys general. In the moderate-sized Wisconsin County, Racine County, Deputy Luell gathered evidence via subpoena and interviewed family members, staff members, and local election officials. He pulled the voter applications and envelopes used for voting in the 2020 election, compared the participation rates to past elections, and looked to the potential voters' records of voting going back to 2012. He also reviewed visitor lists the governing provisions of the election code and the Wisconsin Election Commission's documents and proceedings. In contrast, other states, such as Arizona and Georgia, while conducting their audits, have apparently failed to do the legwork necessary to follow up on potential illegal voting or fraud. And both Arizona and Georgia, which also broke for Biden in 2020, there's solid evidence of illegal voting that could easily have been determined through a thorough investigation, yet to date there's no evidence that these states have launched the probes necessary to prove or disprove the concern. Earlier this year, the Georgia Secretary of State's office confirmed they were investigating evidence of more than 10,000 voters illegally voting in a county in which they were no in, in which they were not residents. Yet a request by the Federalists last week for the status of that investigation went unanswered. Such an investigation should be simple, albeit time-consuming, as demonstrated when a local reporter in Georgia went knocking on doors to ask voters about their moves and where they voted, confirming the data provided the Secretary of State's office. Maybe then there's a fourth takeaway from the press conference Racine County Sheriff had last week in Wisconsin. Maybe the, maybe the fourth takeaway is rather than depend on state officials to take election fraud and illegal voting seriously, Perhaps the complaints should be handled by local law enforcement. That approach could work in Georgia, given, however, the Democrats have already proven they don't care about election integrity. The evidence will need to be handed to red counties. That tactic might even have a second unintended but beneficial consequence 
prompting Democrats to retaliate by lodging complaints with left-leaning police and sheriff's departments. The majority of Republicans would welcome that development because election integrity matters no matter which side benefits from illegal voting or fraud. Also, most Republicans don't fear honest investigations into election fraud and illegal voting. That Democrats do fear that is telling. That's Margot Cleveland, senior contributor to The Federalist. She served nearly 25 years as a permanent law clerk to a federal appellate judge and is a former full-time faculty member and adjunct instructor at the College of Business at Notre Dame. And the article, which I'll put on my Facebook page in a little bit, is called Why the Wisconsin Elder Fraud Voting Story Has National Implications. And children, it does. I mean, it really does. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about what's going on in Virginia because Fairfax County has made it clear that um, they might not turn in their ballots till Friday. I hope, I hope they will not be successful in trying to steal it for the horrible Terry McAuffle. You know, while we're at it, they're doing the big uh, climate change meeting over in Europe, right? And the great Eric Matheny, attorney, podcaster, social commentator, says today, if climate change was actually a doomsday, a doomsday level threat, you wouldn't have 400 private jets being flown to a climate change conference if COVID was a life or death health emergency, the U.S. border would be closed and you wouldn't be incentivizing people to come here to the tune of $450,000 a head. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And we all know it. Oh, by the way, we talked the other day about the Democrats getting five people out with tiki torches pretending to be white supremacists at a rally for Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate for governor in Virginia. And it turns out all five of them were affiliated with the Young Democrats of Virginia, and they started taking their social media uh, platforms down. They went private on Instagram and deleted their Twitter accounts and all that. It might have actually flown. It might have actually worked, but... The five white supremacists were three white guys, a white woman, and a black guy. So people are like, oh, wait a minute. So last night at Glenn Youngkin's uh, final campaign rally last night, a whole bunch of liberal media reporters posted pictures from the back of the crowd where there was one guy in a blue jean jacket and a cowboy hat with obviously a freshly ironed-on Confederate flag symbol on the back of his blue jean jacket. And none of them tried to get a picture of his face. None of them wanted to talk to him and ask him why he was there. They were just all falling in line in the tank for the Democrats, pretending that 
it would be natural for someone with a Confederate flag on the back of a jacket to support the Republican instead of the Democrat. Just so you know. Just so you know. They're in the tank. Now, Terry McAuliffe's final final message last night, his closing statement, went something like this. And I promise you, we've got to diversify our teacher base here in Virginia. 50% of the students in Virginia schools, K-12, 50% are students of color, and yet 80% of the teachers are white. We all know what we have to do in a school to make everybody feel comfortable in school. So let's diversify. So here's what I'm going to do. We'll be the first state in America. If you'll teach for five years here in Virginia in a high-demand area, that it be geographic or coursework, we will pay room, board, and tuition at any college, any university, any HBCU here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. All right, so again, the message... The message of the Democrats is racism. The message of the Democrats is racism. Terry McAuliffe is like, there are too many white teachers. Oh, okay. Oh, all right. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of the global warming thing, do you hear what uh, Prince Charles said? Check it out. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Ah, the Great Reset. Fundamental economic transition. Now, I learned a lot over the years from Rush Limbaugh. And one of the big things I learned from him is the phenomena of ridiculously wealthy people pretending that they have the best interests of poor people and even middle-class people at heart. And it's all about, hey, don't bother me, okay? I'm wealthy, but I'm a good guy. I'm saying the right things. And that's the deal with Prince Charles. I'll tell you what, you know, if he was actually concerned with justice, all right, if Prince Charles, if, if this limey was actually concerned with actual justice, it, it, it seems to me that he might be more interested in uh, 
calling for justice for the victim or victims of his brother, Randy Andy, Prince Andrew, Duke of York, close friend of Jeffrey Epstein who didn't kill himself. But it's all a charade. It's all a charade. Which is why, again, 400, 400 private jets flew people into the climate conference, which is why untold numbers of SUVs uh, were idling outside the climate conference, which is why the heads of states donned masks for their... Uh, For their photo ops and then quickly took them off. Know what I'm saying? It's all a charade. It's all a charade. Now, this is fascinating. There's a guy named Michael P. Singer. He's an attorney. He's author of China's Global Lockdown Propaganda Campaign, The Masked Ball of Cowardice, and Snake Oil, How Xi Jinping shut down the world. And he's got a little thread out here on Twitter explaining how through propaganda and fraud, the Communist Chinese Party under Xi transformed the snake oil of lockdowns into so-called science, the greatest crime of the 21st century to date. The story of how he did it and why, and it's fascinating. And he's got a kind of a synopsis here, a thread on Twitter, and I thought I should share it with you because so many of us are trying to figure out, hey, what happened? You know, Donald Trump put together the most prosperous economy in the history of the world. And because he believed Fauci and Burks, they pulled the rug out from under him and us, all right? Here's what Mr. Singer says. And again, the book is Snake Oil, How Xi Jinping Shut Down the World. And it's just, it's just remarkable. Okay, so in March 2020, liberal democracy ground to a sudden stop. Like the Reichstag fire of 1933, historians may never know how SARS-CoV-2 came about. For scientists, exploring its origins would be a rewarding endeavor if it weren't pre precluded by the jackboot of Xi's Communist Chinese Party. But while intelligence agencies spent months investigating the virus's origins, the world employed an unprecedented response that proved far more de devastating than the virus itself. Mass quarantines modeled on those imposed in China, commonly referred to as lockdowns. It was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe since the Second World War. And it was all for nothing. Lockdowns had never been about science. They had sprung into global policy on the order of the Chinese Communist Party, Princeling, who is now the most influential member of the baby boom generation. Xi Jinping, born in Beijing, 1963. His father, Xi Zhongzheng, 
was notable among party leaders for his relative moderation, the Dalai Lama. Later gifted Xi Jinping a watch that he kept for the rest of his life. At home, however, it was another story. Xi Jinping was a brutal disciplinarian who would scream, lash out at his wife, and beat Xi Jinping and his siblings and public the model statesman and private the tyrant. 1966, Mao Zedong launched his cultural revolution, setting radical red guards against the hierarchy of the Communist Party. A stated goal was to purge all vestiges of capitalism and traditional Chinese society, imposing Mao Zedong thought as China's dominant ideology. Xi Jinping and his confidants rarely speak of his experience in the early Cultural Revolution. Xi's parents were tortured and his father was exiled. Xi's boarding school was shut, and he and his friends were bullied and beaten relentlessly as children of a so-called black gang. In one incident, Xi was paraded onto a stage wearing a heavy metal dunce cap. His mother was forced to attend and shout, shame on Xi Jinping, along with the crowd. Xi's father was in prison in 1968, and Xi was sentenced to juvenile detention, but he avoided this fate when Mao, Mao Zedong launched the Down to the Countryside movement. At age 15, Xi was sent to live in a cave house in Yan'an, China. Xi couldn't stand farm work and ran away to Beijing, but was caught and sentenced to a forced labor camp for re-education. It's a wonder he made it out of that. Xi later returned to Yan'an and this time threw himself into his work. He officially joined the Communist Chinese Party in 1974 after being rejected nine times. In the words of a friend, Xi chose to survive by becoming redder than red, talking about red China, red, red Communist China. The clever young Xi was a model party man. To the common people, he exemplified patriotic service and family life while he charmed wide-eyed foreigners with reliable tales of trying to find time for his exercise routine. In November 2012, Xi Jinping was elected general secretary of the Communist Chinese Party. He was widely expected to be a moderate reformer who would continue leading his country toward openness and global cooperation, but he had other plans. Xi assumed his role as general secretary, understanding his country to be in danger. He had long studied the collapse of the Soviet Union and required his comrades to do the same, including the subversion of communism through Western values. In 2013, Xi issued a secret directive known as Document Number 9. According to it, the ideas that threatened China included independent judiciaries, human rights, Western freedom, civil society, freedom of the press, and the free flow of information on the Internet. In Xi's words, only socialism can save China and only socialism can develop China. Circumstance forces cooperation with the decadent capitalists, but the two systems cannot long coexist. The party values the liberal international order, but abhors its liberal values. Xi became chairman of everything. He acquired 10 titles. Assuming control of foreign policy, the Internet, the courts, the secret police, through his so-called anti-corruption campaign, Xi rooted out what he called tigers and flies, both high-ranking and low-ranking officials. 
Xi revived Maoist demands for conformity, explaining the media must serve as a party's throat and tongue. Thousands of churches and mosques across China have been demolished and images of Christ replaced by images of Xi. Xi's war on Western values include surveillance and coercion of dissidents, students, and media outside China. The Communist Chinese Party bribes foreign officials, buys foreign media companies, sponsors foreign protests, and intimidates foreign researchers, activists, and media personalities. In 2017, Chinese reformer Liu Zhebao became the second Nobel laureate to ever die in prison, the first being Karl von Ossiatsky, who perished in a concentration camp in 1938 after exposing Germany's clandestine rearmament under then-Chancellor Hitler. The embrace between Western elites and China began half a century ago when Henry Kissinger argued that relations with the Communist Chinese Party could drive a wedge between China and the USSR. Glasses clinked as China opened for business and the Soviet Union collapsed. What started as a nibble became an addiction as Kissinger greased access to Communist Chinese Party officials, paving the way for more influence peddlers. Before long, Western elites were gorging themselves on Chinese money, and with each dip of their paw, their greed only swelled. Think tanks, research institutions, and elite universities developed an entire business model around the Communist Chinese Party. You know, we, I even saw that when I was doing a local radio talk show in Little Rock, Arkansas. The governor of Arkansas loved to talk about how he loved to go to China several times a year. There's even some kind of a Bush China Foundation that members of the Bush family put together. No, 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 don't take my word for it. You do an internet search. <clears throat> Anyway, whole academic careers could be made or broken by one's views on China. Stories that Beijing was stealing scientific and military secrets, running spy networks in Silicon Valley, compromising legislators, and paying huge retainers to professors were downplayed. Signs that the Communist Chinese Party posed a threat in any way were muted and dismissed. An entire generation of academics, journalists, policymakers, and MBAs had learned to tell the story of a modernizing China. The tendrils of the China Communist Party's totalitarian system gradually extended into Western institutions. Over decades, the CCP had constructed a multi-layered system for stifling dissent based on the Soviet psychological warfare technique of Zersetzung, or psychological decomposition, causing individuals to willfully play down evidence before their very own eyes. Sounds like cognitive dissonance to me. In 2017, Xi pushed the CCP's foreign influence into overdrive in an unprecedented campaign, unleashing the CCP's sophisticated apparatus of censorship and propaganda on the world. Their lightning speed allowed the CCP to gain considerable ground without drawing attention. Let's see. He's got 
a picture, a map of the world with all these things coming out of China. Let's see what it says about the one going into the U.S. Chinese state broadcaster CCTV dominates the Chinese language cable landscape in the United States. Fascinating. China's state media has accounts all over websites blocked in China. Media channels built over time with fluff about Chinese culture and pandas can be activated at key moments to deliver propaganda to enormous audiences. Some CCP disinformation bots have been found to have over 10,000 followers and to have tweeted in 55 different languages. The CCP's social media army uses artificial intelligence to generate accounts on social media with pictures of seemingly real but fictitious people. In 2021, a brand new Twitter account was instantly verified despite falsely representing itself as a medical doctor. One of the account's followers was China's daily chief confirming the CCP's ability to generate fake, verified Twitter so-called doctors without consequence. The CCP cultivates foreign outlets to produce favorable content and manipulates international search results on platforms like Google. CCP-friendly tech giants provide censorship and surveillance assistance, opening the door to whole new levels of influence. Media owners and executives enforce censorship by killing stories and dismissing journalists. The CCP uses intermediaries, advertisers, tech companies, governments, and international organizations to prevent or punish the publication of unfavorable content. Now, within China, local officials obstruct foreign correspondents and security forces detain journalists' family members. The 2018 annual survey of the Foreign Correspondents Club of China yielded, quote, the darkest picture of reporting conditions inside China in recent memory, unquote. The CCP has shown itself especially adept at silencing China's minority populations. The way to keep unrest from going viral, the CCP had learned, was to quarantine it. Ever since the CCP's takeover of Xinjiang, the party has debated how best to manage the disputed territory. Terrorist attacks in Xinjiang grew worse in the early 2000s. A deadly attack in 2009 killed nearly 200 people in Urumqi, Xinjiang's capital. Following his visit to Xinjiang in 2014, Li Xi, pardon me, Premier Xi laid the groundwork for what would become his signature policy, the detainment, re-education, and quarantine of over one million Uyghur Muslims who he said were infected with extremism in a system of concentration camps in Xinjiang. Now, Xi likened Islamic extremism to both a virus and an addictive drug and declared that addressing it could be done only through a period of painful interventionary treatment. He said, we must be as harsh as them and show absolutely no mercy. Fascinating. A directive on how to handle minority students returning 
to Xinjiang in 2017 instructs officials to tell the students that their relatives have been infected by the virus of Islamic radicalism and must be quarantined and cured. Question number four. Why can't my family come home? Answer. Usually you would, but if you were careless and caught a virus like SARS, you'd have to undergo enclosed, isolated treatment. It's very hard to eradicate viruses and thinking in a short time. Wow. In early 2020, anyone who logged onto social media was greeted with a barrage of videos that ele- uh, alleged to depict scenes of a novel virus plaguing the residents of Wuhan, China. You remember seeing them? People just just dropping dead in the street. You remember those videos in early last year? These sensations captured Wuhan residents in various pantomimes of pandemic horror, terrifying millions of viewers around the world. Some showed their victims foaming at the mouth and collapsing in the streets. Others featured officials in hazmat suits. For the naturally skeptical, the videos tended to look hysterical and fake. In one, a team of police with the word SWAT on the uniforms in English caught a man with a butterfly net for removing his mask. Official Chinese accounts widely shared an image of a hospital wing supposedly constructed in one day, but which actually showed an apartment 600 miles away. In one of the biggest viral sensations, videos showed Chinese people spontaneously keeling over and dying from the virus in scenes likened to Zombieland and The Walking Dead. In one notorious clip, the spontaneously dying man throws his arms out to catch himself. Many dismissed the videos, but at the time these videos appeared, no one outside China knew whether COVID-19 really did cause sudden death. And even for those who didn't buy it outright, there was always that nagging voice in their mind, what if? Well, that what if was embedded into the unconscious mind, perhaps being the most powerful effect of all. Another viral sensation claimed to show dead COVID-19 victims lining the streets and waiting to be picked up like trash. As one user tweeted about the video, Wuhan, China, dead bodies waiting for pickup, coronavirus, no ordinary virus, is an intentionally released bioweapon. Now, some of the most influential footage showed authorities wielding, pardon me, showed authorities welding residents into their homes, both for their own good and even more for the good of, of the world. Well, it's not going to be for your own good when you run out of food, that's for sure. Another video featured a woman lying dead in the street, and the story was that she had been shot at the border by doctors as she attempted to flee. But like all the others, this was a lie. It was a motor scooter accident, artfully edited to tell a completely different story. The Wuhan fear videos from early 2020 were the first of several perfectly timed events that would provide the rationale for a fearful public to trade away their rights and livelihoods for lockdowns and restrictions. They crafted a powerful narrative and pre-programmed countless minds. While the Wuhan videos consume social media, most mainstream viewers had their first encounter with COVID-19 fear propaganda through a story picked up by a global media outlets in early February 2020 about a doctor named Lee 
Wen Liang. Now, Dr. Lee supposedly noticed an unusual incidence of pneumonia and warned his friends that hospital staff were being quarantined, causing panic and anger in Wuhan, for which Dr. Lee was admonished by local authorities January 3rd, 2020. Well, the problem is Dr. Win Liang's story does not withstand scrutiny. It remains a mystery why 27 patients experiencing pneumonia in a city of 19 million might even be notable. But on Dr. on on December 13th, pardon me, December 31st, 2019, the Wuhan municipal government was so not intent on covering up those cases that it made an alarmist public announcement about them on its site the very next day, January 1st, 2020, two days before Dr. Lee's supposed admonishment, People's Daily, China's largest newspaper, picked up the story and reported it in the alarmist fashion in English, quote, 27 quarantined in Wuhan due to viral pneumonia, unquote. Again, a city of 19 million, and they got a story about 27 people. Do you know how big a city of 19 million people is? I mean, do you, see, a lot of people don't realize that there are a lot of uh, metropolitan areas in China that are bigger than anything we have in the United States. And I, I don't know if you're aware of that. But a metropolitan area of 19 million people, that's a lot. To, to give you an example, to put into perspective for you, um, the metro area of Atlanta has about 7 million people. Metro area of Philly has 7.2 Houston, 7.3. Dallas-Fort Worth, 8 million. Boston, 8.2. San Francisco, Oakland. San Jose, 9.6. Washington, Baltimore, the combined statistical area, almost 10 million. Chicago, almost 10 million. L.A., 18.6 million. There's only one metropolitan area in the United States that has more people than Wuhan, China, and that is New York City with 22 and a half, okay? So people here, Wuhan, China, you know, when we first heard about that place early last year, um, well, most of us had never heard about it before early last year. Anyway, but I digress. I digress. Let me let me get back to it. Sorry for uh, for digressing there. If I can if I can figure out where I was. So, they're making a big deal in China's biggest newspaper about 27 people quarantined in Wuhan due to viral pneumonia in a metropolitan area of 19 million people. So bigger than L.A., almost as big as New York. In fact, the first time, and again, we're looking at um, Michael P. Singer, 
uh, a, a summary of his new book, China's Global Lockdown Propaganda Campaign, The Mass Ball of Cowardice and Snake Oil, How Xi Jinping Shut Down the World. He says, in fact, the first time the world ever heard the name Li Wenliang was on January 27, 2020, a month after he had allegedly sent his viral messages when a purported expose featuring Li was published in one of the Communist Chinese Party's most venerated propaganda outlets, the Beijing Youth Daily. Image searches for screenshots of Dr. Li's famous messages blowing the whistle on COVID-19 turn up nothing prior to January 27th, a month after they'd supposedly gone viral, but coincidentally the same day Beijing Youth Daily first told of Dr. Li's purported existence. The New York Times first reported on Li Wenliang February 1st, 2020, five days after his debut in the Beijing Youth Daily. Now, if the New York Times had done even cursory fact-checking, they'd have realized Dr. Li and supposedly viral warnings have been invented just days prior by Chinese state media. But again, it's the New York Times. They're, they're not going to do any fact-checking, actual fact-checking. The story of COVID-19 had begun with a panoply of absurd events and outright lies. This is how lockdowns, having sprung into human consciousness on the order of Xi Jinping, were propagated into global policy with a total absence of precedent, analysis, or even logic. Lockdown proponents frequently justified their policies by comparing them to actions taken during the Spanish flu a hundred years earlier. But a cursory examination of those measures reveals that nothing remotely approximating lockdowns was ever imposed not only are lockdowns historically unprecedented in response to any previous epidemic or pandemic in American history, but they're not so much as mentioned in recent guidelines, recent guidance offered by the American CDC. In the words of federal judge William Stickman, it appears as though the imposition of lockdowns in Wuhan and other areas of China started a domino effect where one country and state after another imposed draconian and hitherto untried measures on their citizens. Federal Judge William Stickman's intuition regarding the history of lockdowns was in line with the opinion of the foremost infectious disease scholars. As Dr. D.A. Henderson, the man widely credited with eradicating smallpox, wrote back in 2006, there are no historical observations or scientific studies that support the confinement by quarantine of groups of possibly infected people for extended periods in order to slow the spread of influenza. He says a World Health Organization writing group, after reviewing the literature and considering contemporary international experience, concluded that forced isolation and quarantine are ineffective and impractical. Despite this recommendation by experts, mandatory large-scale quarantine continues to be considered as an option by some authorities and government officials. The interest in quarantine reflects the views and conditions prevalent more than 50 years ago, when much less was known about the epidemiology of infectious diseases and when there was far less international and domestic travel in a less densely populated world. 
it's difficult to identify circumstances in the past half century when large-scale quarantine has been effectively used in the control of any disease. The negative consequences of large-scale quarantine are so extreme, forced confinement of sick people with the well, complete restriction of movement of large populations, difficulty in getting critical supplies, medicines, and food to people inside the quarantine zone, that this mitigation measure should be, uh, should be eliminated from serious consideration. Okay, Michael P. Singer, the, the guy who authored the book, says, in fact, no Western scientists had ever publicly, publicly supported lockdowns until Xi Jinping personally authorized the unprecedented lockdown of Wuhan and other cities beginning on January 23rd, 2020. Xi later affirmed that he had issued these lockdown instructions on January 7th, 2020, but his instructions have never been revealed. Chinese business leader Ren Zhishuang was imprisoned for 18 years for an open letter requesting Xi's instructions be made public. When the lockdown of Wuhan began, the World Health Organization's representative in China noted that trying to contain a city of 11 million people is new to science. The lockdown of 11 million people is unprecedented in public health history. So I guess that's the population of the city as opposed to the population of the metro. Anyway, human rights observers expressed grave concerns about China's lockdowns. Here's one quote. The shutdown would almost certainly lead to human rights violations and would be patently unconstitutional in the United States. Yes, yes, it would be. But human rights concerns did not stop the World Health Organization from praising the Communist Chinese Party's unprecedented lockdowns just days later, long before they produced any results. They said the measures China has taken are good, not only for that country, but also for the rest of the world. World Health, world, world Health Organization Director Tedros Adhanom added that he was personally very impressed and encouraged by the President Xi Jinping's detailed knowledge of the outbreak and the next day praised China for, quote, setting a new standard for outbreak response, unquote. But six days in, the lockdown being unprecedented in public health history, had produced no results, as so Tedros was actually praising human rights abuses with nothing to show for them. Soon after, the World Health Organization's Bruce Aylward told the press, what China has demonstrated is you have to do this. If you do it, you can save lives and prevent thousands of cases of what is a very difficult disease. Two days later, in an interview for China Central Television, Aylward put it bluntly, he said, copy China's response to COVID-19. Now, this is the same Bruce Aylward who shortly after telling the world what China has demonstrated is you have to do this and copy China's response to COVID-19 publicly refused to acknowledge that Taiwan even existed. So he's getting a, he's getting a, a question here from a reporter in Taiwan. It went something like this. See if you remember this. Would the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? She's saying, would the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? He's sitting there saying nothing. And she's wondering why. Hello? 
With the, with the I'm sorry, I can't hear. You. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah. Let me let, let me let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. Right, because because I'm I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well on Taiwan's case. He's pretending he can't hear her, except for when she doesn't ask about Taiwan. We decided to give Dr. Alward another call to follow up. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've, we've already talked about China. Would the WHO... We've already talked about China. He, he's, he's refusing to acknowledge Taiwan even exists. Bruce Aylward from the World Health Organization. That, that should tell you something right there. There are many glaring issues with the World Health Organization's conclusions. They did not even consider other countries' economics, demographics, or even their number of COVID cases, which were very few in most of the world, before telling the whole world, you have to do this. And that's what happens when you have an aggressive action that changes the shape that you would expect from an infectious disease outbreak. This is extremely important for China, but it's extremely important for the rest of the world. And that's what happens. No, 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 no. I hit, I hit pause on that. Lockdowns have never been tried or tested before 2020, even on a theoretical basis. Xi Jinping had brought lockdown into human history. It otherwise never would have entered the collective imagination. Anytime anyone endorsed a lockdown, they were endorsing a Xi Jinping policy. No one was more outraged by the Communist China Party's COVID-19 cover-up than Xi Jinping. Xi personally saw to it that the local officials in Wuhan were punished for how they treated poor Dr. Li during his tragically short existence from January 27th to February 7th, 2020, may he rest in peace. <clears throat> he said mockingly, because the guy didn't even exist. Yeah, they got the um, article from Business Insider here, a screenshot. China says admonishing doctor and coronavirus whistleblower Li Wenliang was improper, calls for punishing local officials. By now, the world faced a pandemic and Xi Jinping's public health policy was suddenly the world's go-to response. All the free world was exposed like so many dominoes. What a shame it would be. What a shame it would be if someone came along and gave them that one little tip. Now, back in October 2015, Xi Jinping made his only visit to the UK as General Secretary of the CCP, a busy man. Xi's trip lasted just four days, and he visited just one university, Imperial College London. At Imperial College, Xi announced new UK-China education research collaborations, including nanotechnology, bioengineering, and public health. Imperial's president reiterated that Imperial strives to be China's best academic partner in the West, Okay, wait for it. Wait for it. February 2020, Imperial College proved just how valuable China's best academic partner in the West could be. An Imperial team led by Neil Ferguson ran a model predicting more than 500,000 in the U.K. 
and 2.2 million in the U.S. might die of COVID-19. Neil Ferguson recalled how China inspired him. He said it's a communist one-party state. We couldn't get away with it in Europe, and then Italy did it, and we realized we could get away with it. If China had not done it, the year would have been very different. Oh, I see. Neil Ferguson, wasn't he the, the professor who, while everything was locked down in the U.K., jumped in his car and uh, and and went to see the uh, the married woman that he was having an affair with while also married himself? Yeah, that Neil Ferguson. Anyway, a study compared the accuracy of various institutions' models predicting COVID-19 mortality across all time periods. The models produced by Imperial College were measured to have far higher rates of error than the others. Always too high rates of errors. Imperial's inaccuracy continued. Prior to the UK ending COVID restrictions on July 19th, 2021, Freedom Day, Professor Neil Ferguson predicted 100,000 cases a day is almost inevitable. Instead, cases per day fell dramatically from over 35,000 July 18th, the day before Freedom Day, to only around 27,000 on July 23rd four days after Freedom Day. Just as Professor Neil Ferguson's models were giving COVID-19 hysteria a veneer of legitimacy, another piece of sophistry by Thomas Poyo began making the round among, pardon me, began making the rounds among policymakers, employing world leaders, imploring them to implement lockdowns on China's model. You see, this Tomas Poyo was an MBA with no relevant credentials or prior interest in epidemiology, and there was little to indicate where he had gotten his ideas. And his article contained many oddities. It implored leaders. But in two to four weeks, when the entire world is in lockdown, yet by March 10th, the World Health Organization had not declared a pandemic. There were hardly any cases in the developing world other than China, Poyo's article went viral at an astonishing pace, gaining 40 million views in nine days. Reactions were mixed. Many top commenters expressed shock at his lack of qualifications and accused him of being a liar and a fraud. Um, yeah. I think you could, I think you could say that. Sure. Undeterred, on March 19, 2020, Poyo posted another Medium article titled The Hammer and the Dance, which again went viral, explaining the strategy, the hammer, lockdowns, followed by the dance, track and trace. Despite being published just three days after Poyo's article, the German panic paper relied heavily on his work discussing the hammer and the dance. That term has no history whatsoever in epidemiology Tomas Poyo had invented it for his March 19, 2020 article. One of the Panic Papers' authors was Otto Kobel, who had no background in epidemiology or public health, but taught for many years in China and ran a blog in which he had described Hong Kong as parasites and praised the Communist Chinese Party's exemplary governance of Tibet. Another author author of the panic paper, Maximilian Meyer, also had 
no epidemiology or health background, but spent years working at University of Nottingham in Ningbo, China, Tongji University in Shanghai, and Renmin University in Beijing. Later, hundreds of pages of emails containing communications leading up to the panic paper were provided to Germany's independent Corona Committee. In one email, Meyer specifically recommended, quote, we suggest the motto, collectively distance, unquote. Of the 210 pages of emails leading to the German panic paper, 118 were blacked out. The emails contained frequent references to China, but nearly all of them were redacted. Now, the stated reason was may have adverse effects on international relations. You think? At the same time leaders were digesting Professor Neil Ferguson's models, Tomas Poyo's articles, and national abominations like the German panic paper, the CCP was engaging in a broad, largely clandestine propaganda campaign to normalize and promote lockdown measures. In China, the CCP had long paid hundreds of thousands of social media propagandists who post hundreds of millions of comments each year. Xi unleashed these activities globally, and they escalated dramatically along with COVID. In general, social media companies have only been able to detect obvious automated activity while fake, personally managed accounts can be created with ease. This works out nicely for the CCP, who have always preferred the human touch. <laughs> when Italy became the first country outside China to lock down, Chinese experts arrived on March 12th and two days later began advising tighter lockdowns. Italy was simultaneously bombarded with Chinese propaganda and disinformation. From March 11th to 23, 2020, roughly 46% of tweets with the hashtag Forza Cien, pardon me, Forza Cine Italia, which means go China, go Italy, and 37% of those with the hashtag Grazie China, in other words, thank you China, came from bots. Simultaneously, hundreds of thousands of clandestine social media posts later flagged as state-sponsored, used identical terms to admire China's lockdowns and urge governments around the world to emulate them, denigrating those who failed to follow. The bots stormed governments, including but not limited to Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, Namibia, Kenya, France, Spain, Colombia, Brazil, Canada, Australia, India, Germany, the UK, and of course, the United States. On March 15, 2020, bots began wildly sharing a YouTube video they called A Message from the Future, showing Italians with a message to themselves from 10 days prior, gaining 8.3 million views. As more countries shut down, some activity took a darker turn. Took a darker turn, that is. When South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem refused to issue a statewide lockdown, her Twitter feed was filled with abuse to pressure her to do so. Some of these accounts would hurl similar abuse at governors across the country. In this example, a model CCP account shows strong support for China's policies and abuses, including in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, and antipathy for China's key rivals, India and the U.S. The account strongly supported lockdowns all over the world. And he has all kinds of screenshots from Twitter. 
The online abuse of anti-lockdown leaders continued for some time when Brian Kemp, the first U.S. governor to end his state's lockdown, honored late Representative John Lewis. His Twitter feed was stormed in conspicuous language that often attacked his anti-lockdown stance. Simultaneously, Chinese state media began describing herd immunity as a strategy violating human rights. Sweden, whose leaders were unique in foregoing lockdowns, became a primary target of the CCP's lockdown propaganda campaign. Meanwhile, the scientific foundations for lockdowns were being laid. Underpinning lockdown was what they call asymptomatic spread. Remember hearing about that? Yeah, I even got a... uh, I even created a nickname for the governor of Arkansas when I was doing the local talk radio show there. We called him asymptomatic Asa. But I digress. Meanwhile, the scientific foundations for lockdowns were being laid. Underpinning lockdowns was the idea of asymptomatic spread, which will be the only basis anybody could come up with for actually restricting healthy people. It was believed to be a novel feature of COVID based on studies from China. As the World Health Organization wrote, SARS-CoV-2 infected people without symptoms can also infect others. Early data from China suggested that people without symptoms could infect others. To better understand the role of transmission from infected people without symptoms, it's important to distinguish between transmission for people who are infected who never develop symptoms and transmission from people who are infected but have not developed symptoms yet. This distinction is important when developing public health strategies to control transmission. Wow. Yeah, let's just trust China. Let's just believe China. Yeah, asymptomatic spread. Sure. I'm going to tell you something right now. If you believe that somebody can have a deadly virus and never develop symptoms, and that person can spread that virus Without, without ever knowing that he or she has it to somebody else who can get deathly ill and maybe die from it, there would never be a reason to stop wearing masks, to stop lockdowns, any of that stuff. Because you're, you're... No, no, because you're, you're bought and sold at that point. You're, you're all in for this fallacy, for this fantasy. You're sheep. Michael P. Singer, author of the book, How Xi Jinping Shut Down the World, continues. He says, in March 2020, the World Health Organization released guidance recommending mechanical ventilators to treat COVID patients. Citing Chinese journal articles claiming Chinese expert consensus called for invasive mechanical ventilation as the first choice, in part to protect staff from aerosols. Now, Dr. Cameron Kyle Sedell acted as an early whistleblower in a widely shared video. The World Health Organization and China's early ventilator guidance had killed thousands of innocent patients. A study later showed a mortality rate of over 97% among those over age 65 who received mechanical ventilation. In other words, you put them on a vent, they're probably going to die. Here's Dr. Cameron Kyle Sedell from uh, 
spring of last year. Nine days ago, I opened an intensive care unit to care for the sickest COVID positive patients in this city. In these nine days, I have seen things I have never seen before. In treating these patients, I have witnessed medical phenomenon that just don't make sense in the context of treating a disease that is supposed to be a viral pneumonia. Nine days ago, I presumed I was opening an intensive care unit to treat patients with a virus causing a pneumonia that was ravaging lungs across the world, starting out as something mild, a uh, cough, a sore throat, and progressively increasing in severity until ultimately ending in something called acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. This is the paradigm that every hospital in the country is working under. This is the disease, ARDS, that every hospital is preparing to treat. And this is the disease, ARDS, for which in the next two to six weeks, 100,000 Americans might be put on a ventilator. And yet, everything I've seen in the last nine days, all the things that just don't make sense, the patients I'm seeing in front of me, the lungs I'm trying to improve, have led me to believe that COVID-19 is not this disease and that we are operating under a medical paradigm that is untrue. In short, I believe we are treating the wrong disease and I fear that this misguided treatment will lead to a tremendous amount of harm to a great number of people in a very short time. Wow. Nine days ago. I well, no, 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 no. I'm going to start it again. That was intense. So in a matter of weeks, the world had dismissed a century of epidemiological research and adopted the model of the Communist Chinese Party. Wow. South Australia's chief health officer recalled how the World Health Organization's Bruce Aylward urged her into this course of action. She said, while the state had, had, had a pandemic plan before any of us had even heard of COVID-19. Professor Spurrier admits it's impossible to be 100% sure of what lies ahead at the beginning of an outbreak. Here's the quote. While we were somewhat prepared and we thought about pandemics and we had a pandemic preparedness plan and such, nobody in the world really envisaged how huge it was going to be. But we had a very insightful video lecture from Dr. Bruce Aylward leading the World Health Organization's investigation into China. And he said to us, do not underestimate this virus. It is terrible. And if you can do something to, about stopping it, getting in, do everything you possibly can. And then we were starting to get text messages from colleagues, ICU to ICU from Italy saying, this is like the apocalypse. Don't underestimate this. This is absolutely terrible. So we went on and did something about it. <clears throat> Well used to media, after more than a year of press conferences, Professor Spurrier said the public's impression of her confidence in the face of the pandemic was a true reflection of what she felt during this time. She said, I can't say I've been scared during the pandemic. I had real confidence that the hospital system would have an ability to deal with patients. I had real confidence in the South Australian government that we would manage together. I had a lot of confidence in the community that we would get through it. But the main thing, though, the main thing she says is Dr. Bruce Aylward of the World Health Organization's investigation into China said, this is a big deal. You got to do everything you can. Get scared. Get frantic. I want to go back to something, um, an age-old saying that uh, is attributed to Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
right? Got it? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Now keep that in mind. In the UK government's official coronavirus action plan for March 3rd, 2020, discussing social distancing, school closures, and rapid COVID tests and vaccine development, nearly every source the government cited was from China. All the measures outlined in New Zealand's official COVID-19 elimination strategy document, physical distancing, widespread testing, surveillance, all those measures were adopted from China based on the reported success of the Chinese Communist Party's Wuhan lockdown. Days after its panic paper, the German government published a catalog of measures from experts at University of Nottingham, Ningbo, China, recommending lockdowns, testing, and quarantine centers, and what would soon be a global COVID propaganda slogan, Together Apart. In March 2020, following World Health Organization, labs across the world began mass PCR testing for COVID, another departure from previous guidance. Koble and Meyer, the China fans behind Germany's panic paper, also called for PCR testing in their learning from Wuhan paper. Now, the World Health Organization's Testing guidance contained only three studies discussing PCR cycle thresholds. All three were from China, and all three used cycle thresholds from 37 to 40, a standard adopted in the U.S. and many other countries, pursuant to which 90% of positive tests were false, according to the New York Times. Anthony Fauci agreed that a cycle threshold of 35 or more is not a real positive based on guidance issued by the World Health Organization, citing three studies from China. Labs across the U.S. and many other countries have been using cycle thresholds for PCR tests that inflate COVID case counts tenfold. And they don't care. Here's Fauci talking to a couple of guys about it. I'm wondering if you think we could use uh, a cutoff of viral loads determined by PCR to say this patient is no longer infectious, can go home, can go to a nursing facility, because right now the, the physicians are really having a hard time with that. Right. Again, a good question. And what is now sort of uh, evolving into a bit of a standard that if you get a cycle threshold of 35 or more that the chances of it being replication competent are minuscule. Mm. So that if somebody, and you know, we do, we have patients and it's very frustrating for the patients as well as for the physicians, somebody comes in and they repeat their PCR and it's like 37 cycle threshold, but you never, you almost never can culture virus. Yeah from a 37 threshold cycle. So I think if somebody does come in with 37, 38, even 36, you got to say, you know, it's just, it's just dead nucleotides, period. But they used it anyway. Now, this is crucial. PCR technology was invented in 1983 
by American biochemist Carrie Mullis. Dr. Carrie Mullis. And it was invented to let scientists study tiny particles of DNA in detail. For this, he won the Nobel Prize. At a panel discussing PCR in 1993, Dr. Mullis stated quite plainly that PCR should not be used to diagnose illness. Here he is. The measurement for it is not, is not exact at all. It's not, it's not as good as our measurement for things like apples. An apple is an apple. You know, you can get something that's kind of like, if you've got enough things that look kind of like an apple and you stick them all together, you might think it as an apple. But and, and HIV is like that. Those tests are all based on things that are invisible, and they are the results are inferred in a sense. PCR is separate from that. It's just a process that's used to make a whole lot of something out of something. That's what also, it is. Um, it's, it's not, it doesn't tell you that you're sick, and it doesn't tell you that the thing you ended up with really was going to hurt you or anything. All right. And yet... World Health Organization, CDC, NIH, FDA, and 50 state health departments in the U.S. are like, we don't care. Well, Dr. Kerry Mullis, who won the Nobel Prize for developing, developing, developing PCR technology, says about it not being designed to test for viruses, we're going to pretend it works anyway. So you got all these false positives, right? Now, uh, I'll go one step further. In a 1996 interview, Dr. Kerry Mullis had choice words for Anthony Fauci, then head of the U.S. response to AIDS at that time, especially Fauci's misuse of PCR. So I'm wondering, again, if you think no, we no, could no, use, stop. It's no longer no, stop. Again, if you set... The cycle threshold, if you set it high enough and PCR can pick up any amount of viral matter and, uh, viral matter and yield endless cases, a permanent pandemic is what you're going to have. Right? Check this out. What is it, what, what is it about humanity that, that, that it wants to go to all the details and stuff and listen, you know, these guys like Fauci get up there and start talking, you know, he doesn't know anything really about anything. And I'd say that to his face, nothing. The man thinks you can take a blood sample and stick it in an electron microscope and if it's got a virus in there, you'll know it. He doesn't understand electron microscopy and he doesn't understand medicine. And he, doesn't, he should not be in a position like he's in. Most of those guys up there on the top are just total administrative people and they don't know anything about what's going on at the bottom. You know, those guys have got an agenda, which is not what we would like them to have, being that we pay for them to take care of our health in some way. They've got a personal kind of agenda. They make up their own rules as they go. They change them when they want to. And they smugly, like Tony Fauci, does not mind going on television in front of the people who pay his salary and lie directly into the camera. You can't expect the sheep really respect the best and the brightest. They don't know the difference, really. I mean, I, I like humans, don't, don't get me wrong, but basically there is a, there is a, there's a vast, the vast majority of them do not possess the, the ability to judge who is and who isn't a really good scientist. I mean, that's a problem, that's a main problem actually with science, I'd say, 
in this century because science is being judged by people. Funding is being done by people who don't understand it. Okay, who do we trust? Fauci? Fauci doesn't know enough to, you know. If Fauci wants to get on television with somebody who knows a little bit about this stuff and debate him, he could easily do it because he's been asked. I mean, I've had a lot of people, president of the University of South Carolina, ask Fauci if he'd come down there and debate me on the stage in front of the student body because I wanted somebody who was from the other side to come down there and balance my, because I felt like, well, these guys can listen to me. But I need to have somebody else down here that's going to tell me the other side. But it was, she didn't want to do it. Exactly. He didn't want to do it. FBI Director Christopher Wray disclosed that the Chinese Communist Party had specifically approached local politicians to endorse its pandemic response. Got it? 30 seconds. And I will note that the pandemic has unfortunately not stopped any of this. In fact, we've heard from federal, state, and even local officials that Chinese diplomats are aggressively urging support for China's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. Yes, I mean, this is happening at both the federal and state levels. Not that long ago, we had a state senator who was recently even asked to introduce a resolution supporting China's response to the pandemic. Say what you want about FBI Director Christopher Wray. Right there, you heard 30 seconds of him telling the truth. So, the overarching lie hammered by the Communist Chinese Party into elite discourse was this. Quote, China controlled the virus, unquote. Now, of course... The contention that China controlled the virus was a bald-faced lie. But by reinforcing that lie in high society, the Communist Chinese Party ensured its fake data remained paramount in scientific discourse. What has happened to this country? That we decided to flush our freedom away and replace it with communist propaganda. New Yorker magazine did an article called How China Controlled the Coronavirus. And everybody bought into it. Everybody bought into it. I wonder how much they paid uh, whoever wrote that for the New York Magazine. It's part of the Great Reset, I believe. I mean, if Trump hadn't bought into what Fauci and Burks told him, maybe still be present because they wouldn't have been able to steal it with all their uh, universal mail-in ballots and, and, and all the, uh, the cheating, you know? Um, there's a remarkable article over at Brownstone Institute by a guy named Gunter Kampf. He is um, 
a consultant, hospital epidemiologist, and associate professor for hygiene and environmental medicine at the University Medicine Greifswald Institute for Hygiene and Environmental Medicine, Germany. And this remarkable article he has says, this is not a pandemic of the vaccinate, of the unvaccinated. He says, some politicians speak about the pandemic of the unvaccinated, but fully vaccinated individuals can harbor high viral loads, spread SARS-CoV-2, and cause severe and fatal COVID-19, also among other fully vaccinated individuals. Social cohesion should not be jeopardized because of an erroneous and narrow view of, a, of the epidemiological situation. And I'm, I'm not going to read the article because, you know, we, we, we've gone pretty long today. But I will say this. The people who are getting fired for not getting the shot, people like me, it's because the people in charge truly believe this lie about the pandemic of the unvaccinated. And that that is that is that is a shame. That is indeed a shame. Because it's not true. And what we're going to see, what we're surely going to see is more and more negative ramifications of the people who did get the vax. And it's a crying shame. So, on a completely different, completely different subject, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse began today. Now remember, Kyle Rittenhouse was a young man who shot three people, killing two of them, totally in self-defense. It's obvious from the video. And we will keep track of that situation. And we pray for um, justice for the falsely accused. We pray for justice for the falsely accused. By the way, the Tennessee legislature has banned vaccine passports and is protecting doctors who speak out against the shots. Daniel Horowitz has a story over at The Blaze. And so that's fantastic. Can I, can I share one more thing with you before we get out of here? I want to give a shout-out to Dave Seminera over at Wall Street Journal. He's got an op-ed that dropped Sunday evening. Media ignore Florida COVID recovery. He says, Florida went from having the country's highest rate of COVID infections to the lowest in about two months. 
Does the turnaround illustrate that infection rates are cyclical and often affected by weather? Is Florida's infection rate lower than in states with significantly higher vaccination rates and mandates? Are those policies futile or counterproductive? Are Floridians now close to herd immunity? I don't know the answer to those questions in part because journalists are less interested in asking them than in bashing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. An October 25th New York Times article on declining COVID cases nationwide failed to mention Florida, the state with the country's most dramatic improvement. Instead, the New York Times' Dave Leonhardt emphasized that Republicans have lower vaccination rates than Democrats. Recent coverage of declining COVID rates in the Washington Post and CNN also failed to mention Florida's turnaround. The CNN story made a point of noting that white evangelical Protestants were among the least likely adults to get vaccinated. Bloomberg's Timothy O'Brien penned an October 26 analysis piece that accused Mr. DeSantis of replacing sound public policy making with political theatrics in the COVID-19 era, but ignored the improvement in COVID numbers. MSNBC injected race into an October 25th hit piece Headlined, like Trump, DeSantis uses a black face to mask his COVID failures. The author, a guy named Jahan Jones, disparaged Florida's Nigeria-born Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo as a, quote, reliable tool used in support of Governor Ron DeSantis' dangerously poor pandemic response, unquote. Yahoo News at least nodded to reality. Publishing a piece with the headline, Florida now has America's lowest COVID rate. Does Ron DeSantis deserve credit? Andrew Romano, Yahoo News' West Coast correspondent, based in L.A., not Tampa, says the answer is no. The virus we've known for some time comes in waves, waves that ascend, peak, and ultimately recede on a remarkably consistent timeline. Yeah, I I, I bet he uh, buys into all the Chinese communist propaganda, too. Tell that to ABC, ABC News, which on October 24th informed its website's readers that California Governor Gavin Newsom managed to flip the script as the former epicenter of the pandemic with forward-thinking policies that included some of the strictest mask and vaccination mandates in the country. Now, the author here says, I moved to Florida from Oregon in 2019, and I'm grateful to live in a state where personal freedom is still respected. I'm vulnerable to infection because I have two autoimmune diseases and I got vaccinated in March, but I support Mr. DeSantis's approach because we can't live in fear forever and it's wrong to force our children to do so. CNN published an October 25th opinion piece by New York University's Ruth ben Gatt, author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. She asserts without irony that Mr. DeSantis is imitating the tyrannical Donald Trump, because the governor has insisted on public health policies like opposing mask and vaccine mandates that have contributed to mass death in Florida. Her words. In the brave new world of today's media, a tyrant is a politician who leaves you alone. That's remarkable, isn't it? You know, they uh, <clears throat> they use these terms. What is it that the, the guy in The Princess Bride said? You keep saying that word, but I don't think you know what it means. Something something along those lines. I'm not Ted Cruz. 
I don't have the whole thing memorized, you know. But um, <laughs> I I don't have the whole thing memorized. But that's that's the gist of it. That's the gist of it. So I have been asked to uh, to be in somebody else's podcast tonight to do. Uh, Election night coverage. Uh, Christopher O'Brien, the guy who who, uh, interviewed me the other day on his podcast. Uh, He's he's got a podcast called The Ozone Radio. And um, so I'm going to be on that. I think it's 8 to 10 Eastern that I'm going to be on uh, his podcast, The Ozone Radio. Um. We're going to be doing election night coverage, uh, Virginia, New Jersey. I think it's pretty obvious who freedom-loving people should be voting for in both states, and it's certainly not the Democrat. It's certainly not the Democrat. Um, before we uh, wrap things up here, I just want to remind you to uh, keep Dan Bongino in your thoughts and prayers. He's putting a lot on the line to stand up for people like me who got fired through no fault of my own because I refused to put an experimental drug in my veins. And I, this is, it's unprecedented. It's remarkable. I've never seen anything like it. So uh, keep Brother Bongino in your prayers because he is, he's standing up for the rest of us. And not, not just for radio guys who got fired, but he's standing up for the rest of us. He truly is. All right, uh, this has been episode number 16 of the Doc Washburn Show, uh, Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. We appreciate everybody for spreading the word. Uh, we're up over 26,000 downloads, just the first 15 episodes. Uh, and uh, we, we thank you, and we appreciate you for getting the word out there. And we look forward to speaking with you again uh, tomorrow at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, God willing. Signing off for today. Thanks. God bless.